Thank you, Jim, for that. Uh, first of all, let me say thank you so much for helping us to honor the public health department today. I know that uh, some of you uh, struggle with that, but I'm very appreciative. And uh, thanks for the feedback on my email where I explained my thoughts about why we should do this as a church. If you didn't get my email, uh, that should tell you something. You're not on our list. So go to dillonchurch.org, and on the front page, you can subscribe down near the bottom if you want to get our emails and uh, announcements, things like that. We try to communicate with you pretty regularly, uh, almost weekly. And so uh, go subscribe. Um, We only have one service today. Next, so those of you that came in about 10 till 10, thank you, you're here early. Good for you. Those of you that came in time for the 830 service and had to leave and come back, well, that's what you get for not listening. (laughs) Mercy is my gift. (laughs) So next week, we're back to the two services again. And um, so just remember that two services next week, not one. But thank you for coming. Happy New Year. It's fun to have you. I saw um, I'm on uh, several website uh, groups. One of them is uh, Christians Who Enjoy Good Clean Jokes and other things like that. You know, uh, Far Side, I'm on that one. I love the Far Side. And um, so I saw one today where a little kid is asking, Mom, what's a New Year's resolution? That's a promise you make the first week in January so that you can break it the second week. And um, I, I hate January at the rec center because every locker's gone. Everybody's busy. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was standing there and I said out loud with 50 guys in there, I can't wait till February when you guys all quit. And they all started laughing. And sure enough, February, I'm kind of by myself in there. And so um, this is the beginning of the year. And uh, some of you have already made resolutions. And I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, I called this today, the story we find ourselves in. Uh, In other words, what do we have to look forward to this year? We're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about a new year. How should we approach it? But this is laying the foundation for a study that we're going to start next week in Ephesians that we're calling the house that God built. A year ago, right now, this very Sunday, I announced we're starting Leviticus. A bunch of you came up to me afterwards and said, have you actually read Leviticus? (laughs) And I don't know about you, but I had a blast in Leviticus um, during the winter time, going through and helping you to see that Leviticus is critical. You see, Leviticus is the one book of the Old Testament that captures the theology of God's people and what we are to be about. You have to get through all of the many, many, many commands to get to it. But that's what we tried to do a year ago was to look at it. And there I made the argument that Leviticus is like a blueprint. It's, it's a piece of paper with what God's design is for holiness. So remember we talked about sacrifice and priesthood and blood and all of that stuff, right? And every one of those finds their, their uh, expression, their fulfillment, if you will, the blossoming in the New Testament. But it's just a piece of paper. And um, the piece of paper, what we learned, Paul argued this, and we know it's true, is that the problem wasn't with the law. The law was great. The problem is here. And that's why we needed a savior. But it's still a piece of paper. It hasn't built anything, I think, until Pentecost when the Spirit shows up. So this year, we spent all last year in the Old Testament. This year, we're going to jump into Ephesians starting next week and look at the house that God built. So now we're going to get to what does this house look like that's growing because we're part of it. Every one of you has one of those bricks, one of those stones in that wall. And every one of you is part of that building. And so what does this building look like? 
But first, I want to talk about how do we approach this year and help you think through some guidelines for what do you want to accomplish? If you don't at least ask that question, it's just going to be another year. Before you know it, the year's in behind you and you look back and you think, what did we accomplish? Anything at all? So let's start with a question. What made the first followers of Jesus so passionately courageous? What made them that way? They were unstoppable in telling um, the world about Christ. No prison too deep, no beating too harsh, no mocking too shaming or embarrassing. What happened that made them that way? You see, calling people to conversion was very costly in the first century world. It still is in many parts of the world. Where I travel, third world countries, it's illegal to proselytize people to Christianity. And there's, you know, in India, for example, there's a, I'm assuming it's still there, haven't been there in a while, but there are two-year prison sentence. And so what, what and, and these people in the first century, they knew that. What made them so passionate, so courageous, so unstoppable? And I'm going to argue that it was because they were Jews. And they knew their story. They knew it. You know, one of the challenges with kids who are adopted is they don't know their story. They're unanchored, if you will, from life. And uh, psychologically, that's a real challenge to help them settle in and develop a new story when they don't know their own story. You all, almost all of you, not all of you, but almost all of you know your story. You know where you came from. You know where you were born. You know the dynamics in your family. You know the successes and failures of your parents. You know all that. You know your story. Well, the Jewish people, they were the first ones. I mean, these, these disciples, they went crazy because they knew their story and they knew where they fit in that story. So what I want to do for the first part of today is just rehearse the story. Every year, we should tell the story to you. Every year. And if you're new and you haven't heard the story, well, buckle your seatbelt. It's a crazy one. No other religion has this story that we have. We start with the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, if you were God and you're going to take a whole group of slaves out to the wilderness to make them your people, where would you start? Would you start telling them how great you are? Would you, you know... Would you start with creation? Is that the place you'd start? But that's where Genesis starts. Why? Because immediately, right off the bat, God's beginning to give them an identity that's different from all the surrounding nations. In other words, if I can dramatize the creation story a little bit, he's going to say, let me tell you what really happened. Because you have been misled, fake news, it fits in our world today, doesn't it? So let me tell you the truth about who I am as the creator who made you. And this is where we learn right off the bat that creation is a very vibrant part of our world. It's there for two reasons. One is to for us to enjoy. It's our home, and I hope you do enjoy it. Um, and the other one, the other reason is because it helps you to see that you're not alone. It's really hard. You know, I understand agnosticism. There might be a God. I don't know if I can know him. That makes sense to me. I don't understand atheism. I don't really think there's any true atheist. There is no God. How can you look at all that and say there's no God? And so this world is there. to. It's a, it's a picture book. Think of a child. God has immediately given us a picture book. That's why Paul can argue every human is without excuse. No human has an excuse. All you can do is look. Something happened. Okay, that's Genesis 1 and 2. We learn about our own roots. 
We learn about God's love for us, and we learn about human dignity right off the bat. I was uh, part, of a, uh, part of a theological discussion group on LinkedIn, and uh, I don't really participate very much. It's, it's a little bit more, um, to use an old-fashioned word, liberal than I am. And so all the whole Genesis story is all myth, okay? And so one guy finally said, uh, one of the scholars on there said, you know, I don't know any educated person today that uh, believes Genesis is real. Okay, now we cross the line. <laughs> so I wrote back, I have five degrees, two masters and a PhD. I believe it. Silence. <laughs> it's like the universe stopped. Hours go by. And one person said, I am astounded that you're an educated person and you believe it. Why could you possibly believe that? And I said, because uh, Genesis lays the groundwork for all of the Christian story because it starts with a real simple idea, you have dignity. And you know how we know it? Because he lets you decide, which is the essence of dignity, freedom. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 5, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the essence of dignity is you have the freedom. And without that, the rest of the Bible wouldn't make sense because God from the very beginning shows us that we are important and made us his image, so he's going to let us decide. Silence. A day goes by, not a word. And finally, one scholar said, well, I have to be honest, you have given me pause to think that the first couple of chapters are actually important. He said, um, but I'm going to have to think about it. And that's what I think. Genesis 1 and 2 lays the groundwork for everything we believe. And so God is telling them, here's what really happened. Don't believe the rest of the world. And by the way, that's a very good advice all the way through the Bible. Okay? Don't believe the rest of the world. So we, we learn then right after that, Genesis 3, the fall. And the bigger the fall is, then the bigger the solution has to be. Okay? If it's just a minor inconvenience, we tripped up, well, then we don't need a big solution. So theologians call it total depravity. Every single atom and molecule in you has been devastated by the fall. You have no idea how to think apart from the fall. None of us do. We will find that out in glory when evil is dealt with, greed, corruption, all of that. So there's no way we can overstate how destructive the fall was to rebel against God. It's massive. It's massive. And uh, you all have tasted some of it, but you don't really, none of us, and myself included, don't understand how deeply destructive and influencing it is in our lives. It's, it's a challenge to demonstrate faith, isn't it? It's really hard. Our natural tendency is always going to be to trust out what's happening right here because that's our frame of reference. So in some respects, what's happening now is a gift to us because in my opinion, and honestly your opinions, uh, my doctor asked me, how do you feel about getting a booster? And I said, all right, I'll be honest with you. I don't trust Dr. Fauci. I don't trust the CDC. I don't trust the NIH. I don't trust the president. I don't trust Governor Polis. I don't trust any institutionalized person to tell me what's right. But I don't have the skills to figure it out. So you're my doctor, and I trust you. And my guess is, you've probably done research. He chuckled, and he goes, 
more than you will ever know. Okay, this is not a slam. It doesn't matter who's the president. As long as they're institutionalized, they're always going to move in a direction different than me as a Christian. I'm going to move this way. Not in rebellion. Don't get me wrong. It has to do more with I have more confidence in this than I do a human uh, leader. Okay, not because they're bad or good. They do a lot of good things. They do bad things. You know, that's just the way it is. So we talked for quite a while, and he explained to me his understanding of things. And so there's no way you can overstate the fall. Now, the bigger we make the fall, the bigger the solution has to be. If it's a minor inconvenience, it doesn't take Jesus, quite honestly. Okay? But because it's totally, completely destructive, it takes God himself because we can't solve the problem. This is our story. I'm a student. Uh, I've always thought that if I did a second PhD, it'd be in cultural anthropology. I'm a student in cultural anthropology. I read all the time in background studies, and I have yet to come up with a single example where culture led us in the right direction from God's perspective. Not one. Not one. That's how big the problem is. God himself has to step in and guide us through the process. Well, then the story doesn't end there. Praise the Lord, because it would be uh, pretty desperate if that was the end of the story. Redemption, God comes along. He could have forgotten our, us, and he decided not to. He wasn't going to abandon his creation. He loves his creation. He loves us, just like you love your rebellious teenager. <laughs> okay, you, you made them, and you got to love them, don't you? You can hate them uh, from time to time, as we all do. But uh, it's easier for me to love your teenagers than it is for you to love them. Because I can laugh at what's happening. You can't because you're the parents. <laughs> it's great. So God chose not to destroy it. He chose to redeem it. Therein lies the gospel, the good news that we believe. God loves this creation so much that he's going to do everything within his power except violate your free will to cause you to come to him. And I've watched it for decades. I am astounded. And you've heard me say this when I'm talking to someone and I'm watching those spiritual eyes start to open for the first time. I just get goosebumps because the Holy Spirit just showed up. And I'm watching the miracle of miracles in the world happen in front of me. Some people take a long time. I mean, we're pretty rebellious people. Okay, pretty stubborn. And I lead the list. Okay, Genesis 12, he chooses Abraham. There's the beginning of the story. And from that time on, from Genesis 12, all the way through to Revelation, is the story of what we call the gospel. The good news that our God has not forgotten us. He loves us. And he's got something in mind for us that's just so good. It's just wonderful. And so this is the story. This is our story of God's saving act, what we call Redemption. Redemption simply explained is this. Somebody's got themselves in trouble. Somebody else pulls them out. So maybe, maybe you were very foolish with your resources and your money, and something happened, and now you can't protect yourself. So we come alongside and step in to help you. That's redemption. That's captured beautifully by the story of uh, Ruth. And, uh, and so we got ourselves in trouble because we, God gave us the freedom. We took advantage of it. We turned against him. And now we can't get ourselves out of that mess. So he gets us out of the mess for him. So the Exodus story then gives us the best picture 
of the best model of this redemption. He hears his people crying and groaning in Egypt. They've been enslaved for 400 years, over 400 years. And he's silent, and he finally steps in and rescues them and takes them out of slavery to freedom, leads them to the promised land. Of course, being good humans that they are, they have to take the winding road to the promised land, much like many of your teenagers, and much like me. That's why I've said if if your teenagers are on the winding road to Jesus, don't give up. Keep loving them, okay? My, I had a child that had to try everything and do everything wrong and rebel in every way he could and get in trouble, go to prison and all that stuff before he finally arrived. Okay, well, that's who I am. <laughs> Chip off the old block. So if your child is taking the winding road to Jesus, don't give up. Keep loving them. That's what the Israelites did, and God didn't give up on them, okay? That's redemption, and that becomes the model of the cross, He's bringing us out of slavery to sin into a life of freedom and responsibility. That's Paul's argument in Romans 6. That's why we do baptism. Baptism symbolizes going into the water, you're dead to sin, that's turning to Christ, and you come out clean. Clean. Good Leviticus word. So, um, as we move through the prophets, we discover that uh, Israel could not live by God's standards. They just couldn't. You know why? The heart was a problem. That's what we discover. Praise God, he sent us a high priest, Jesus, to solve this problem right here so that now we can. So um, we learn from the New Testament a couple of things. One is the kingdom has come. And Jesus, as a true human, models all that we are meant to be. Male or female, doesn't matter. When you look at Jesus, you see what God intended us to be and what we're becoming in him. But we also learn that the spirit came, and all of a sudden this house, pictured in Leviticus, is starting to get built. Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets lay the foundation. And then one person at a time, as they turn to him, this spiritual house is being built. Every one of you has a name somewhere in this wall. Every one of you. So the cross is what made that happen. And so therefore the cross becomes the core of our mission in every way from evangelism to the care of creation. That's who we are. We are to be the world leaders in forgiving, loving, helping, being generous, caring for creation. We are to be the world leaders. We should show the world what it looks like because they're desperately trying to figure it out through policies, procedures, you know, in various forms of rebellion and everybody has a better idea and guess what? They're never going to get there. Never going to get there. They need to look at us. Okay? We don't need the school board. We shouldn't have to have the school board putting in policies about everything from CRT to all of this stuff, equity. Okay? What we need to do is we need to say we should be the leaders in caring for our minorities so they don't have to figure out sometimes stupid and sometimes good policies. We should be the one that are leading, the leaders in the world on that. That's where we should excel. So this opens the door at the cross to a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, all of you are part of the new creation. You know the verse, if anyone is in Christ, we are part of the new creation. The old has gone. We've left it behind. The new has come. That's us. 
The problem is, is that because you've lived your whole life in, uh, in brokenness, fallenness, and sin, you don't know what that really looks like. Your natural default is to always move toward uh, fallenness because that's comfortable to you. And so this is why church becomes absolutely critical because together we can study and learn what this new creation looks like and not only what we're moving toward, but how to get there. It doesn't happen by default. It's called intentionality, and that's what we do. And this becomes our hope. So Revelation gives us this incredible picture of this renewed creation and God's love for us. So we as the church, or for the rest of the the winter, we as this spiritual building, this house that the Spirit's building, we are integral to this grand movement. This is our part of the story. So just like an adopted person doesn't know their background most of the time, I'm telling you our background. This is why the early church was so unstoppable. They were unstoppable. So I want to give you a theological model about New Year's resolutions, okay? Um, I asked you about why were they so passionate about spreading the word. They knew from where they had come. They understood the true hope. They knew that the Roman occupation was only temporary, and they were guaranteed future rewards. Guess what? The pandemic, the chaos, only temporary. It's only temporary. These are what Paul called minor, minor afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. So then Paul asks a very interesting question in Galatians 4. Let's put that up, Anne, up on the screen. Galatians 4 in verse 8. He said, um, let's see. Formerly, yep, I got the right one. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Okay, now pause. Every one of you is a slave to culture. You're a slave to, to fallenness and sin. You're a slave to brokenness. You know why? That's all you know. The world out there, they're slaves. This is not condemning them. This, I want you to understand the reality of who they are and who we are. They're slaves. They're enslaved to all of the, the lusts of the flesh and the things that are going on in culture. And this is what he says. But now that you know God, verse 9, or rather, I love this, are known by God. You know, the greatest desire that all of us have deep down inside one of them is for people to know us, to know the truth about us, and love us anyway. Is there anything better in the world than that? That's what makes a good marriage so priceless. Okay? You want to know what I'm really like? Ask Nancy. She's the one that knows. In fact, she's at home sick watching on TV, so I can say whatever I want about her. <laughs> no. She knows the truth about it, about me, and loves me anyway. And that's what he's saying here. But now that you know God, or rather, you are known by God, he knows the very worst about each of you. And guess what? His eyes twinkle. A.W. Tozer argued, and I love this, early in my Christian walk, if you look in God's eyes, you could see them dazzling, dancing with delight. 
So when I sit down with you and some of you want to tell me about the sin that you're struggling with, uh, most of the time you're caught up in the shame. But if you pause and just look at my eyes, you're going to see them grinning because I'm watching the Holy Spirit work. Because sin is a trap. It's enslaving you. And so I love the privilege of helping you open that door. We did that two years ago, opening the cage and letting us out of the cage. And that's really what that is. That's what redemption is all about. He goes on, how is it that you are turning back? If this is true, or now that you know God, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Is that what you wish? To be enslaved all over again? It's a fascinating, fascinating question. Why do we keep looking back? Politics, pandemics, failed marriages. Why do we keep looking back? And even worse than that, why do we long for the past? We have this very inaccurate view that life was good. Life has never been good. Life was broken from the time they ate that fruit. Okay? You're just remembering what you want to remember. That's what you're remembering. And this is a very insignificant question. Uh, Nostalgia. Okay? Remember what the Israelites said? We remember the leaks in Egypt. They totally forgot about the slavery and the beatings. Okay? Do we really want to go back? He said, why do you want to go back? Nostalgia, I think, is psychologically damaging. Reminiscence is good because you evaluate the past, but nostalgia making you want to go back It puts you in a place of believing what's really not true. Life was not good in the back, in the past. You just can't remember it. Nancy and I have laughed many times at our time in Germany for four years. Boy, wouldn't it be good to go back there? And then we pause and do a reality check. Let's go back and let's remember what it was like. Ooh, do we really want to go back there and live there again? (laughs) Because we forget things. We forget the bad part. We're wired that way to hope. To look forward. Nostalgia is a incorrect appraisal of the past. What's what it's good about it is that it's it's revealing your nature to want things to be better than they are today. No, I don't want a chaotic nation. I don't want presidents that are, you know, I'm and I'm not talking about Trump or Biden. I'm, not, I'm just talking about presidents. I don't want presidents that, that go from narcissism to idiocy. I don't want that. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice, right? And every president fits somewhere on that spectrum. Now, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Okay, now think about that as far as us. We're not ruling, but when the righteous are living in the land, the people begin to rejoice if we use that well. Okay? if we use that well, because they capture a glimpse by looking at us. So the past enslaves us. We don't want to go back. So therefore, Philippians 3, he says something very interesting, Philippians 3. Let's go ahead and forward to that. I press on. So now he's looking forward. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's our purpose. We're looking forward to that purpose that he made us for. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, pay attention, forgetting 
what's behind. It's vacant. It's empty. It's broken. Okay? There's no promise back here. There's no promise. Forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward, toward what? The goal. To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Okay, that's what, that's what the world is trying to do with New Year's resolutions. Okay? That's what they're trying to do. They never make it. The best time to buy exercise equipment is at the early at the end of January, the beginning of February. <laughs> if it's been used, it's only been used twice. And you get it for half the price. Doesn't that describe the world? Okay, so how do we actually press forward, press on legitimately, so that we become a changed people? Having a happy new year doesn't happen by accident. Guess what? If you're a drug addict, you're still going to stay a drug addict. If your marriage is in trouble, you're still going to stay in trouble. Okay? If you're overweight, can't lose weight, it's not going to change because I said Happy New Year. That's not what's going to change everything. The desire doesn't lead to change. Okay? The desire is really good because the desire that people have reveals this innate character that God put in us, in us to want to hope. But by itself, it doesn't do anything. You see, the dream has to turn into something intentional. Do you want to lose weight? You got to do something about it. For 25 years, the doctors have told me as a severe asthmatic, there's going to come a day when it's easier to stay on the couch. If you give in to that, across that threshold, your days are numbered. I got there this summer. I was in pain because of my hip, struggling to breathe because of COVID and pneumonia. And Nancy said, come out, let's go for a walk. It's the first time I said, I don't want to get up. And Nancy took my hand. She goes, I'm not going to give you the choice. Get up. She made me get up. Now, having gone through surgery, by the way, I don't have a brace on. My hip feels good. My lungs are clear. I've been exercising them. I'm, I'm back off the couch. It doesn't happen by default. You've got to do something about it. You want to improve your marriage? It takes work. It's really hard to produce a godly marriage. It's really hard. And some of you that have it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Can't understand that woman to save me, save my life. It's funny, in the book that I wrote this last year, in the preface, uh, I, it was read by several professional editors, about eight of my friends. I read it. Gosh, I don't know how many times. I even read it out loud to make sure there weren't any errors. There's one glaring error in the preface. Uh, I got the book and I opened it up. It's the first thing I saw. It's, it's, my, it's my love for Nancy in the last paragraph. I said, read it. She read it. She read it the way she wanted to read it. I said, read it again. I said, read it out loud. The very last thing I say is how much I love my wife and I can't imagine life with her.
Nancy did what you did. She goes, this is brilliant. Don't ever change it. Leave it, right? And I said, well, it's actually kind of true. At least half the mornings I get up, and I can't imagine life with her that day. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Living with a woman is like beyond my comprehension. <laughs> you want to improve your marriage? It's a lot of work. You want to grow closer to God? It doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen by itself. It's a process. In fact, let me just give you some some thoughts about this year. If you've never read the Bible, read it through. This is my 24th year of reading it from cover to cover. All of you can download an app. It's They're free today. Out there on the Welcome Center, we have here, you can read, you know, here are the passages to read on which days. We have Essential Bible Companion. This is really great. It's very simple. As you start a book, it's just two or three pages one or two pages, and it just gives you a glimpse into the book, and you're going to discover things that you cannot understand. Why on earth did God command certain things? Why did he demonstrate his anger the way he did? I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to read through this book. It is X-rated at places, okay? You're going to find out about murder and rape and judgment. You're going to read all about that. But woven through that, as you begin to read it, you're going to find a thread of grace, where God is watching out for you, his faithful people. Read it. If you've never read the Bible, pick it up and read it. That's the beginning of starting to grow, draw closer to the Lord. Know who he is. Okay? It's not too late. It's only January 2nd. You can make it. Uh, maybe you want to save and invest more. Maybe you want to get out of debt. Maybe you want to deal with sin. That's the other part of drawing closer to the Lord. You see... Sin is an obstacle in that movement to the Lord. You want to draw closer to the Lord? Okay, you've heard me say many times, come talk to me or one of our elders or staff. Luke 6, no judgment, no condemnation. I may laugh at you because you got yourself in a pretty good bind. Okay? If you're foolish enough to sleep with uh, somebody else's spouse, you're going to get some laughter out of me because you're buried now. And it's a winding road to get back. But if you don't get back... You're going to be stuck. Don't stay stuck. If your marriage is in trouble, don't be ashamed. My marriage has been in trouble. Okay? Let us help you get out of the stuckness, the mud, the mire. Okay? That's part of it. So there's several parts to drawing close to the Lord. One is reading his own story. Another one is dealing with the stuckness, the sin, the brokenness, whatever it is. Another part of it is being with us. This is the safest place on the earth right here. We'll laugh at you, but we won't judge you or criticize you. Okay? I don't mind laughing at it. I've been where you are, so I get it. But there's another part of it that has to do with intentionality. Paul talks about beating his body. Some of the older translations, I beat my body into submission. Okay? Your body naturally wants to move toward the lust of the flesh. You have to actively take control and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And this is where you can talk to me. You can talk to your friends here, whoever. It doesn't matter. You can do that. In other words, it's really taking control of your own life and not letting it control you. So be intentional. Sit down and think about what you want to do. For years, Nancy and I, I took a blank piece of paper, and we just wrote down, Okay, the physical, what do we want to do in the physical world, our physical world, our bodies and everything? What do I do in the financial world? What do we want to do in our sexual world? Our intimate world is a couple. What do we do? What do we want to do in our parenting role? And that becomes more complex as the children grow. Now we've got an 18-year-old grandchild. 
And so we talked it through and said, well, what do I want to accomplish this year? And then uh, I'm a little more, you know, OCD than Nancy. And so once a quarter, I'd sit out with her and say, how are we doing? Are we saving the money that we want to save? You know, uh, do we have the money set aside for retirement? Are we doing that? How are we doing with our parenting? Do we like it? How are we doing in our relationship with each other? Are we happy? And talking about our dreams and desires, talking about our frustrations. We just, if you have that conversation two, three, four times a year, you know what? It becomes very easier, much easier when you age to talk about all those things because the challenges get more complex. They don't get easier and they get more expensive. So be intentional about it. So sit down and talk to each other. If you're married, if you're single, then think about it. If you want help, talk to one of us. I love dreaming about those things. What is it you want? Tell me what you want. Because your desire, when you begin to express it, what you're hoping for reveals that created part of you that God put there. Just because you dream it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So think carefully about what you want just this year. Just pick one thing, two things. What do you want? And you know what? Once you do that, and then you sit down and say, how are we going to make that happen? That's when the Spirit grins and says, come on, I'll help you. We'll walk together. Walk down that road together. That's really what it means. Okay? Don't, don't waste a year. Don't waste a year looking at the media unless you can see it as a source of entertainment. And I'm serious. I laugh at it. Psalm 2, the Lord laughs at the nations and he scoffs at the nations. He laughs. <laughs> you think you got this figured out. Well, guess what? Here's Omicron. Okay? And then they, then they put in place their wisdom and he scoffs. <laughs> yeah, right. You think that's going to solve the world? I mean, God is really big and we're really small, but we're really important. Okay? Don't be so afraid. Take the necessary precautions to protect yourself, to be safe, to do all the things that we think in our wisdom, in this current wisdom, I'm not going to laugh at it, okay? Current wisdom. That's why I asked you in my email. They want us to wear masks. Thank you for wearing masks. Okay? Thank you for doing that. That shows something. I'm not so concerned. Me personally, my primary motivation is because, as Paul said, I become all things to all people so I might win some to Christ. What I mostly care about is the people that are watching online because they don't feel safe coming. And I care about the public health department which pays attention to us and neighbors and friends that, that want to know are we taking care of each other. That's really what I'm mostly concerned about. And if it keeps me from getting sicker, I'm grateful for that. You know, my doctor told me, he says, please be careful. I don't know if your lungs are up to a second bout of COVID like you had. And so you still have COVID lungs. So just take care of yourself. All right, I'll do that. So I asked him, I'm going to Kenya in two weeks. Uh, by the way, two weeks from today, I'll be in Kenya. And I asked him, do you have any problems with me going to Kenya? He goes, nope, you're not going to sleep with the women. You're not going to drink the water. I'm not worried. <laughs> Perfect. I'm not either. And I have 30 pastors there that are begging for some tools, equipping. So I'll be gone for six days, I think, seven days. Thank you for being, being careful. Thank you. We do have, you wouldn't know this, but we do have some very, very vulnerable people here. Some are sitting right here. Others are watching from online. And so I'm grateful. Father, thank you for sending us your son. It means so much to us. Thank you for the story that we find ourselves in. Um, 
because that's what generates hope. We know where we've come from, and we know, Lord, the enslavement, the entrapment of turning back. We don't want to turn back. We really want to stretch forward to reach as an athlete to the prize that you have because we know that these are momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory when we get to be with you and with each other forever. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.